I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of Season 3 of The Discomfort Practice. You are in for a treat. Adam Nozel is one of those people who I, I was introduced to, and we have had nothing but incredible conversations since we were introduced just a few months ago. He's one of those people I feel like I've known for years. And even though we've never met in real life, because he lives in Scotland and I live in Spain and we met during a pandemic, I feel like we're just part of the same tribe. We are colleagues, we are allies, we are kind of soul family members. So we always have incredible conversations, and this one is no exception, and was proving so fruitful and so rich that I just let it keep rolling and have split it into two episodes because there's a sort of natural break between the two. So make sure you check out the second episode with Adam because in this first one, we really intentionally seek to model the kind of conversations that we need to be having in this world and are often not. So we're calling it a nurturing, nourishing conversation, but it's one in which we explore a pretty big topic that we have made a different choice about, and that is vaccination. And we model, because this is both what we're trained in doing and both passionate about doing, how to hold space and how to honor the idea that even people you disagree with have some wisdom and that they aren't wrong just because you disagree with them. That you can have a conversation in which you disagree and both be right or both be wrong or be free to change your mind. And it's probably not a typical podcast conversation because there are a lot of pauses and a lot of exploration of things that aren't possible to articulate yet because we're both exploring these concepts and listen with patience, listen with attention to how this conversation makes you feel. And I do draw your attention to that in a couple of places, I believe, and ask you, how do you feel? Rewind and listen to what Adam just said and how he, how he delivered what he was thinking with pauses, which are very conscious. And think about how conversations in your world would be if they were hosted like this, because we're both hosting this conversation and very consciously not interrupting and leaving space for pauses. Also, make sure you check out episode two, the second part of this conversation with Adam, in which we talk about his tech startup, Tula, and his mission to help people create new language for this new digital continent we've all landed on, in which we're trying to learn how to make tech human. We're trying to figure out how to make it work for us and help us to truly connect without the sort of unnatural artificial constraints that we've we sort of brought into it from our old systems, our old ways of doing things. You know, I'm talking about agendas and needing to stick to time frames and, and how hard it can be to connect with other people individually on platforms like Zoom. So make sure you check out that episode. But 
as I've said, you're in for a total treat with this conversation. Listen to it as a model conversation and hopefully find some elements that you can take with you into your own life, into your daily conversations, and maybe seek out somebody you know you disagree with and see how that goes, holding space for each other to disagree without anyone being wrong. So welcome to season three and enjoy this interview with Adam Nussel. Well, here we go, launching into season three with my first guest, very intentionally my first guest. I'm really excited about this interview because I wanted to kick off this season with somebody who could model with me the kind of conversations I want to have all season, the kind of conversations we need to be able to have. So allow me to introduce Adam Nussel. He is a UX designer and social entrepreneur whose focus is on how we increase the health of our conversations within an internet-enabled society. That's a fancy way of saying, how do we actually have really nurturing conversations in an age in which a lot of the conversations we have are virtual, online? He's created pop-up universities to reduce plastic waste and has contributed to organizations like Democracy Earth and Digital Peace Talks. Since 2015, Adam has been hosting groups in digital spaces to work, learn, develop, create movements, solve problems, and more, which is obviously leading the curve that we're now all on in this age of doing most things online. He's a serial entrepreneur who's founded three tech startups so far. The most recent one is how I came across him when a mutual friend, hi Eller, introduced me. So even though we've never met in real life, I feel like I've known Adam for a long, long time. It feels like we're part of the same tribe. So Adam is currently the founder of Tula. Tula is an online platform like Zoom or Skype that we're used to, but its focus is more special. It's on creating a digital public space where humans can gather with purpose. The people at Tula believe the wisdom from our physical environments can help guide us in creating better digital spaces. So take all the things you know about meeting in person and use them to have better meetings online. We'll talk a lot more about that because it's more than just that. Too many of our virtual spaces are privately owned and the people of Tula want to change that. So Tula was born in 2019, as if Adam had x-ray vision and could see ahead to the future during a design thinking accelerator in partnership with the V&A Design School. They've recently been given a boost by securing investment from a fund that were one of the original investors in Canva. We all love Canva. Big things really, truly await Tula as they scale in the world that's ready to do meetings, connection, and online gatherings differently. A world that needs to do gatherings differently and needs to find a way to make digital fully human. So Adam and I were recently talking about our ability to hold conversations and hold space for each other and how... Adam says it's at an all-time low. I'm not totally sure I agree with that, but I think I just live in my nice little bubble where I have good conversations. But I wanted Adam to be my first guest for a reason, because of that. I can't imagine anyone I'd rather have a nurturing and nutritious conversation with to serve as a pattern for the rest of the season, and hopefully for how all of us seek to hold conversations. And it's time to put out more of this, exploring and showing that we can hold space for exploration, for opposing views in which no one is actually wrong or right, 
and for navigating new concepts that maybe aren't even formed enough yet to articulate clearly. How do we hold space for that? Because we're living in a world on fire in which the systems we live in have broken society and our planet and a lot of us as human beings. So now is the time to have hard conversations, uncomfortable conversations that turn into exciting and nurturing conversations. It's time to consciously reprogram what we reach for in moments of discomfort, because the only way forward is into the unknown, together or not, hopefully fighting on the same side, because we are actually on the same side as human beings striving to survive and thrive in a new paradigm. The old ways just aren't cutting it anymore. So let's get uncomfortable. Welcome, Adam. <laughs> Thank you, Betsy. Welcome. I am so pleased to be here. And I have suggested the title of this episode be something like Betsy and Adam model how to have nurturing conversations. It's almost like one of those Bill and Ted road trips, but for mm. now, for this paradigm. So let's just dive in. I always ask the same first question. You know, I'm privileged that you actually listen to this podcast. So what's an uncomfortable moment that's changed your life and that drives who you are and what you do in the world? Hmm. The thing that came to, to me most prominently, and interestingly, it's the second time I've been asked this question. Um, but there was a, there was a time in our life, um, where, um, there was a sudden passing of a, of a loved one. So my, my, my now wife's, uh, uh father was involved in an accident in in Scotland which was quite a, a sizable event um so it was to do with a, a helicopter that crashed off the the north coast uh, an oil and gas helicopter and and everyone on board sort of of oh yeah um did not did not survive and in the, the time that that created in our like so that would have been I think over 10 years ago I think for me so it was a formative period of my life I don't know if there's not a formative period of life but it, it felt like a very transitional one and like trying to <laughs> be present for everything that was emerging during that time uh, was quite challenging f for us all but it, particularly with the sort of enhanced publicity of it and and things along the lines of that um but for me it was it was a cracking opening like of me like from my understanding of the world of how this that we're experiencing just now is fleeting it it goes as quick as it comes but also this servitude towards not spending time doing things that you don't necessarily agree with, that don't bring you alive or that you're just doing because you haven't found the language to articulate why you should be doing something else, you know, and um, that sort of really, yeah, has, has made a lot of, is changed my focus on how my time's applied and what it's applied to. So generally, if there's something that I feel passionately about, I'll go towards that. If there's something that's not bringing me alive for too many days, I move away from, you know, and um, 
and just the respect of being of time you know and what time is and, and where time is and, and where it's not so that that has led to I think a concentration of how my decisions are made and how my time's applied and the, the specialness of family and it's probably also led decisively towards my decisions around trying to artic- um, trying to design or, or um, create a life that means I'm present as a father and I'm present towards the the roles in a household and upkeeping of a household in a, in a marriage or a, a, a coupling of people. Um, but then equally, it's also opened up to me reverence towards things we don't know and communications that we don't know. So like I mentioned briefly about the second time, this is the second time I've been asked this question. And the first time was a lot more closer to the, the sensitivity of such an event like that. And it was, it was in a a gathering of entrepreneurs. um, And we had to speak about a time that changed us. You know, what's the time in your life that came to change us? And I was like, oh, I feel I could maybe speak about this. And there was a, a, there was a gentleman that was to go before me. And it was, um, it was an incredible environment. Some of the the stories that these people shared about what they were doing in the world, and they were from all over our world, from very humble beginnings to uh, privileged beginnings, to all sorts. And um, yeah, the gentleman that went before me said, "I had three oppor- I had three moments that should have changed points that should have changed me that were uncomfortable, but didn't." And he mentioned, he said. Um, he worked offshore on oil rigs and he said there was an, a piece of equipment that fell. And he said, the whole time I didn't, I wanted to not to be here. Uh, I wanted to do something that he was passionate in and he was wanting to leave, but not making that decision. And this piece of equipment that fell narrowly missed him and he, he had that re, that reflection uh, that I should change. And then he said there was another time, he said there was an explosion when he worked in that space as well. and. He said it was a big deal. Um, I I didn't know anything of this. And he said if the wind was going in any other of the directions, um, it should have changed. It like it would have been a very different outcome. And he said I was going home, like knowing this that I didn't want to be there. I was having signs not to be there, but I didn't change it. And then he said the third one was, uh, and this is where it was just incredible. He said the third one was I was scheduled to be on a helicopter that um, that crashed uh, into and everyone on board uh, didn't make it. And I'm sitting there in this room and I'm to go next. And... Um, oh my gosh, I just got goosebumps, yeah. And yeah, I, I then, I sat up and say, and was saying I'm going to try and finish this story but essentially my story equates to the person on the other side of that helicopter essentially or you know and it felt like one of these moments where like reality had just done this and come so close together um but that's brought me like a, a whole 
different perspective at like not shying away from those uncomfortable moments i subsequently burst out crying in front of all those peers that were in that room and couldn't finish the story i was blubbering and you know and uh, going oh <laughs> like <laughs> but um yeah i suppose it's not to shy away from the opportunities of discomfort or the richness of dis- discomfort in those so because uh, I see you as such a skilled space holder for discomfort and creating a really gentle, safe environment in which people can explore that. So it's hard to imagine that you had your own experience of discomfort that kind of led you more into what you do and even who you are now. Mm. Because for me, you say profound things all the time and you use great terms like nurturing conversations. So what are some of the elements of nurturing conversations? What we're about to seek to do here, what is a nurturing conversation? My understanding of conversation is like, I always see conversation similar to food. So when I use the word nurturing, it's because I, I see, com- I hold conversation in a similar regard to as food that nourishes my body or exercise that nourishes my body or um, but maybe it's more attributed to the soul you know or nurturing in the soul so when I when I talk about them I, I think about conversation as food and you know there's a a prevalence of what I would describe as fast food conversation you know so um and I think the internet has has really or not the internet, sorry, should I say, our, our current forms of what we call social media or our dominant forms of communication in this in this space sort of lend themselves to those type of soundbite communications. But um, for me, it's about being really honest to what you're saying. You'll also notice frequent pauses in how I communicate because it's, I'm looking for the language to find. Um, so there's a, a discipline of patience towards communication as well. Um, but then equally, it's also understanding about what the purpose of your words are for and what your communication are for. I think you, we've seen just now there's a dominance in the purpose of our language potentially is to coerce people into different behaviors or you know we've come through in my like in my experience of two huge referendums recently so the scottish referendum and the uh, the brexit referendum there and like the quality of conversation around there the values behind it were I think directed towards encouraging certain outcomes where for me, conversation is always to reach some place that neither individual could have achieved by themselves. It is like the ingredients of fine food versus fast food. It really is a good metaphor for it. You search for quality ingredients. You don't have to have a lot of them. They just need to be tasty ones and the right ones because 
I find the way you talk calms my nervous system down. I enjoy talking to you in part because of that, but also because of the content of our conversations. But hopefully people listening notice that, you know, notice how you feel listening to this because I, because I'm talking to Adam, am probably speaking a lot more slowly and with calm because I feel calm. I'm excited. I'm loving this conversation, but yeah, it, it creates space to look for the right words, to take time to express yourself and take a breath. So yeah, I find that incredibly nurturing. And I think it's quite intuitive if people think about it, right? You kind of know what a nurturing conversation probably feels like, a nourishing conversation, as you've also said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what feeds you properly? What makes you feel satisfied and sort of tasty and lovely? And you can just feel it sort of seeping into all of you. This feeds really interestingly into a question that I wanted to come early, which is something that surprised me in our last conversation, which is something that I wanted to bring up here. And that's about vaccination. And and people might be like, how do we go into that? Well, so here's the story. We were talking and I assumed that because I like and respect Adam and I know that our values are very aligned that he had made the same decision as I had to be vaccinated against Mm. COVID. So it really surprised me when Adam revealed that he hadn't. And then it, it challenged me because my initial, I recognized it, knee jerk reaction was, oh my goodness, that's a surprise. He's like me. How could he? I just couldn't wrap my head around it. And I had a very physical, visceral reaction that was totally just what came up. So I took a breath and and it made a conscious decision to hear you out, Adam, because obviously I, I know people on both sides of that debate and I know people who've chosen to stop socializing with people mm. who've been vaccinated, which is an interesting one, and people who've decided to stop being friends with people who aren't vaccinated. So we're in this super polarized, crazy time where yeah, people just leap to conclusions about why you have or you haven't made a choice, but it's a lot more complex than that. So talk about your thinking on this. What? Why have you decided not to get vaccinated? And also, how has that held space and opened up space for others to take time to consider their own decisions? Yeah, it was, it was a really interesting moment that with us, so we came together to talk about uncomfortable conversations and we completely stumbled upon this. And oh yeah, we fell was... straight into it. <laughs> yeah. And and subsequently, like um like when when we did, it didn't really like I did notice the pause, like um or the reaction of expectations not be met in you. And I think it was a it was a compliment to the size of our comp- our conversation that I think we we were able we wobbled, and I think we were able to hold it subsequently after that. But what's been interesting for me is then post that conversation with the invitation then to speak about this here and and amongst this uh, medium or this this uh, platform and it's been one which i've been um 
at times really concerned about doing and not wanting to do. Uh, and at the same time also, like I find myself, I've convened with a lot of friends uh, over over this and just say, look, can you help me explore why, like I'm feeling this just now and why is this? And also I noticed there was a tendency prior to coming in here where I was, I was wanting to like arm myself with the late, with the, the, artifacts of knowledge which I have you know the studies and papers which which I feel bring validity Mm. to my choices and and I was like whoa hold on I I was like that is not that is not useful in this situation that that in fact that's actually Mm. contributing to the very things that you're trying to not do and, and it took a lot like where I had to sort of go, no. And there was multiple invit- invitations towards it that I had to, to, to not take to do. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I suppose I can talk a little bit more about, like for me, the decision is not as relevant as the process. So that's probably why like, like people who share that they have been vaccinated to me cause it doesn't, it doesn't do it. Like I'm not, I don't have that sense of my expectations not being met here or, but equally I've, I've also come across similar reactions. You know, I'm a Scottish person who doesn't drink alcohol and hasn't done since I've been like 25. So frequently I'll end up in positions where people are partaking in communal drinking of 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 alcohol and my actions which are not i'm not vocal about cause them concern they they feel they and they start going well why is this why why are you doing that and and same like i've been vegan for a very long time or plant-based for a long time and i've seen the same reactions triggered if i'm my meal arrives at a table and there's people consuming meat around me, which I have no concern about, you know, this, like it's, I, this is my food, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I've been aware of that, but like my decision in, in this, and this is a perfect example, I think of not only conversations with others, but conversations with yourself. Um, and like how I've come to this or my process during this like I've assembled like a wisdom council almost and I do this quite a lot with things so I'll I'll try and assemble maybe I don't know if prominent voices is is the correct term but there's people that um you know maybe it makes up about 10 different people some of them are uh like medical professionals like commentators uh, on different platforms some of them are epidemiologists and but regardless some of them are neither of that they're just interested in this and and what they tend to range across a whole spectrum of things uh so um and like there's a constant sort of checking in with this and and for me the, the sort of the reason for not at this stage was an understanding of quite early on, I, I reached a position where I thought, wow, this, this, this virus affords me a tremendous amount of agency. Um, so towards how responsive it is, um, or, you know, the data that suggests that if, um, 
you know, you have comorbidities or, or, or things like that to do and, and how responsive it is to good nutrition or optimal vitamin D levels and, and um, things along the lines like this. So when I entered into that situation, I knew I had essentially a considerable amount of years of in the bank of disciplines of, of, of choices made up to there. Um, and then it sort of came down to that. What was a difficult one for me was that understanding that you're doing this for other people, you know, not necessarily it's for you, but for other people. And, and that is something I would respond to, you know, many of my choices in life previously have been made on that, on that grounding. Um, but I wasn't, I, I, I wasn't sort of, uh, sort of um yeah from what i could gather in there i didn't believe that was um i didn't believe that reality was shared you know that that was the case um that these substances that were were being encouraged at the time would lead to that uh, i had sort of questions that i couldn't find answers to with that um and i think I think we might have reached that stage to see that that might be the case, you know, that they, 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 own, they protect oneself as opposed to others. And there's, there's different theories, but I suppose what, what my biggest concern about this whole time that I was more concerned about was that the, the desire for certainty amongst my peers seemed to be extremely high and like what and that really concerned me at this time because I was sort of looking at a a situation that I understood that we have this system you know which is us this system whether it's our immune systems that I think this experience on earth just recently has shown that our understanding of this is not shared. You know, we've got many different perspectives of how it works. And this is from people who have studied it for a very long time. And and then also there was an invitation to introduce into it a substance that we had very sort of a, a very short relationship with. And that the presumption was that only desired outcomes could come from that from that relationship. Um, so I like I was concerned about that, and when I when I saw then at the same time, you know, just um, the opportunity for pre-existing things to use, you know, and, and and this is based on my age and what I knew um, at that time. I yeah, those whole spectrum of decisions, even from one of you know. When I think about this from a perspective of 30 years down the line, you know, um, you know, if there's an opportunity not to use something, then I will take that opportunity to try and prolong the chance of if we do need to use it and, and, and things like that. So, um, but you can probably sense just now, like even now entering into this, it's not it's not necessarily precise what I'm saying all the time. And you, if anything, with my words, I'm circling around and knowing or a position mm-hmm. that I'm trying to get to. And 
if people are not receptive to that, which I have met, you know, the invitations of pauses that I choose in my language, they'll, they'll enter at that point and they'll bring their position to that in order to influence or change it or that rather than, you know, which I would, which I afford them the opportunity to discover that and, and to lead that. And what, what I think I've been really pleased about is, um, a number of individuals and they were senior to me, maybe was it last year, uh, friends and, and family reached out to me and asked, they were like, Adam, I'm, I'm, cons- I'm concerned about this. Um, and, um, I know that you're, you, you tend to get involved in these and, and learn things. And, and they asked me for what my view was and, and, you know, there was a period of my life where people frequently asked me if I believed in God, you know, and I, I felt like it was a similar, is people are not asking, I don't feel people ask that question because they want to know what I believe, but they want the answer to bring validity and reverence to their knowing. Um, and I felt that was the same with these people who were asking me, I'm concerned about whether to be vaccinated or not. And what I did was I shared with them everything that I knew about my process of how I did it. I shared those things with it. I shared my reasons such as, you know, at the time, you know, the risk calculators that I was using suggested it was as similar to me falling down the stairs, you know, like, the, but the, there was a whole host of things. But what I was interested is more, I was like, oh, I really wonder what these people will go on to decide you know, and all three of them, I think that were involved in that, including my parents went on and chose to be vaccinated. And for me, that was a success. I was like, oh, that's really good. I've been able to hold their process, you know, with reverence and still hold on to mine. Um, and it felt, it felt that felt a success for me, strangely. Yeah. And if you're listening to this, you might've noticed like I'm very conscious of Adam's style and pauses because it was like sitting back and getting to hold space for and observe your process. And I would encourage anybody listening to this to rewind and listen to that again and know that those pauses are very conscious. Those are you processing and Mm -hmm. holding space for yourself and then outlining this process of how that enables you to hold space for others. Because anybody who has really done the deep work on facilitation and space holding and deep work that both of us have know that the ability to not talk is in short supply and is super valuable, but you have to be able to hold space for yourself before you can do that for others. So I just, I love, I love that process that we went through together when we had the original conversation. And I explained my my main reason for choosing to get vaccinated was I just want the maximum amount of freedom that I can mm. have if I want to travel. And because I'm probably not going to have children, it wasn't of concern to me the way it is to a lot of my close friends who are of childbearing age or even trying. So I had sort of the luxury of making that decision and having it available and free and um, but then also you mentioned the 
the impact that's kind of been ignored about, at this point, it's anecdotal evidence because science is always behind in its knowledge because you have to prove it so much before it becomes science. Mm -hmm. Keep that in mind. And also there is a huge political agenda behind getting people vaccinated and, and you can have your own theories on that. But yeah, it did mess with my my feminine cycle. And it was something that I, I haven't done a lot of reading on purpose because I didn't want to make any decisions based on mm-hmm. anxiety or fear. And I know that it's really difficult to do that if you've got an intake of any media whatsoever around this, but it did have an impact. And that's worrying that that's been largely ignored because as you said earlier, this is sort of being painted as something that only has positive outcomes when actually it's okay to question. It doesn't make you a crazy anti-vaxxer to want to pause. It also doesn't make you, you know, a dupe of the government, somebody who's easily manipulated and is, you know, going to become a fascist because you choose Mm. to get vaccinated. So I hope people can take from this conversation, not just about the vaccination conversation, that there is a lot of space to hold for each other, to let ourselves have a process and to be free to not necessarily be able to articulate it yet, but that we need to have these conversations, these space holding conversations about a lot of things, climate change, social inequality, racism, you know, just just some little stuff, Afghanistan, whatever, name it. But yeah, I think this is a beautiful illustration of maybe what a conversation could feel like, could sound like, because I also want listeners to maybe think, how do they feel listening to this conversation? How do you feel in your heart, in your gut, in your whole nervous system? How does this conversation and how we're holding it make you feel? Because There's a lot going on in this conversation. We're talking about some really interesting stuff, but we're also trying to model how how to have nourishing conversations. And and to me, this is it. So again, I will thank you always, Adam, for having these conversations. And I know that um, we've talked also about how do we hold space for our instincts and logic? Because as primal beings, we have this instinct like animals do that maybe something isn't quite right. And it takes a while for our brain to process it and then turn it into language that we can articulate. You say this so much better than I do, but kind of how do we honor that? How do we honor instinct and logic? Because we live in a world that celebrates logic first, usually, even though as human beings, we still react in the primal in the limbic system, in the fear first. So how do we hold space for that? Hmm. What's interesting about my choice there that that we've spoken about there is there is like a knowing that's that is pre-exists my ability to articulate. Um but then also there is invitations there then for that knowing to then find forms of articulation to come to uh 
to comfort it almost. So, you know, like the tendency to say, well, this is what I thought and I will then go and find out things in my external reality to confirm them and it will it will then entrench my position and this is uh, my knowings confirmed. And, and, and actually, I think that's really prevalent today, you know, with a lot of our public, I don't know if you can use the word public, but our policy decisions that we've made here, or there's gr- small groups of individuals that have made decisions on behalf of many other people. And I think like on occasions I've, I've watched how people have used language around here and it's, it's a bit similar to like, you know, a, the, a clockmaker who is, who's trying to sell a broken clock and, and claiming its correctness twice a day, you know, they're saying, but look, it's, it's correct there. But at the same time, you have to discard so much other information in order to claim its correctness there. Um, so there's a balance to be found between respecting that knowing and also not allowing it to confirm things in you to, to remain open. But for me, it is a, it's like a daily practice Uh, almost and it's also a practice that I see in others so when I see an opportunity in others that they're sensing a knowing or there there might be a hesitation in them it's an opportunity for me to go oh that's where our conversations to be focused that's where our exploration has started and interestingly if you look at that like you know for me hesitation is like is like a illumination for me when I hesitate in words or hesitate in actions I go oh what is that for and I go and explore that but actually now we're living in a society where we've turned our our weapons of psychological communication almost towards eradicating hesitancy it's seen as a a thing that is of of an undesirable contribution to our species now um and I think there's there's risks of that uh, to some extent. And, and I don't know if that's because like people have, have reached a certain conclusion and then that needs to be confirmed by other people reaching that conclusion. But I think that the reverence we've paid to, um, to questioning and to pausing, to reflecting, to hesitation has been has been really really low just now, um, and subsequently I've also come in contact recently and I've been able to hold conversations really vulnerable conversations with individuals who have who have not paid attention to this knowing and then have felt like they may have been coerced or pressured or you know, employment opportunities would be removed from them if, if they didn't do this and if subsequently have, have went and, and, and done that decision. And I think that's irrespective of the risks or non-risks of the outcome of that decision. I think what I'm more interested in is like, it goes to show you that the process of decision is is far greater than just our knowing of the outcome of it. So those individuals there are, I can only describe as being heartbroken or souls broken by not trusting this, you you know, and there may also be 
and 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 rightly so there's probably people on the other side of that decision who may have not been vaccinated um and then have led into a position where they felt like they should you know so but for me i'm i'm really f- interested on the process and the reverence to showing up to that that knowing and 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 um and i think that's what our world is inviting us now you know um like one of the big things that people have presented to me quite frequently about uh my decision which i'm interested i'm not vocal i've never vocally shared other than now and unless i've been asked by someone else but but one of them is that you know oh what about everyone else is doing this so it can't be wrong you know and and that sort of thing and for me that's not conducive with individual knowing you know so for example look at the situation we're in just now with our relationship to plastics you know we have made decisions over times which have now through retrospect and uh, have we've collectively realized these are not good choices to make and same with like what we term as climate change or uh, our relationship to this earth just now. Our decisions previously have shown collectively that we've, we have, our relationship has not been in service to what we require it to be. Uh, you know, so the, the position of saying, well, everybody else does it, then it must mean it's good. I don't think is a, is a nourishing position to discover knowing our, our intelligence. And, and I've been, I've been really fortunate to spend time in the company of people who their primary source of navigating the world is through instinctual knowledge and communion with, um, whether it's like, uh, they use different mediums to communicate with uh, different guides or sources of or, or to divine knowledge from different sources whether it's in communal settings or through ritual ceremony and, and so on and there but i think what we've moved to is a very unique case on earth just now that there's this pinnacle of knowing whether if it's scientific discovery or um in, inquiry and that that is superior to all other and I think that's we've lost a connection there to something um, in ourselves in doing that, that I think it would be wise for us to begin to reestablish that relationship again. As to how, I think it, that takes many different forms for many different people. Um, but I think it would be very exciting. Because I, this makes me think, well... So many thoughts, so many thoughts. The first is about what you were saying about hesitation and giving us ourselves space for hesitation. Because I think particularly in times of anxiety and fear, we talked about what do we reach for? I said this in my intro, what do we reach for in discomfort? And we, we look for certainty. We look for authorities. We look for people who can reassure us that we know something when actually we don't know anything right now about things like this pandemic or how things are working or as we experience big breakdowns of the systems that have surrounded us for, you know, a couple millennia as human beings, stop the search for certainty. 
And actually, this is something I came to a couple of years ago and realized I was, I kind of came to this with one of my best friends that constantly looking for certainty and answers to, you know, think, what do I need to do with my career? What do I need to do in my dating life? That search for certainty was making me miserable and anxious. And if you just allow yourself to stop needing to know in your head and feel your way through it, the anxiety starts to evaporate once you've reprogrammed your nervous system to be used to navigating like that. But the other thing that occurred to me while you were speaking was there's so much in there of rediscovering the old ways. And I know that we both kind of exist in, I don't know, in a an, an area of exploration and of being in contact with a lot of people who are reviving, you know, indigenous wisdom or reconnecting with nature and recognizing that there is an innate wisdom in nature and we understand very little of it. So it's not, it's not polarized. There is a spectrum along which we move with instinct and logic and allowing ourselves to sometimes be on the far end of like, I'm just feeling right now, or I'm being very logical right now. And there's nothing wrong with either end of the spectrum. And mm-hmm. balance doesn't always mean you're in the middle. It means you can explore both polarities and, and find them enriching because it also is part of for lack of better terminology at this point, masculine and feminine, you know, the sort of structured certainty of the, the masculine, not male, but masculine style that's created the systems of structure that we have in the Western world right now. And then that more intuitive knowing of the feminine sort of, uh, they, they both lend themselves so beautifully to who we are as human beings. And it's just, it's all about allowing ourselves to be fully human, right? And I remember living in Scotland for nine glorious years. It celebrates itself as the home of the Enlightenment. And there's this beautiful mm. history of Enlightenment thinkers and sort of this transformation into an age of, you know, inventing a lot of the things that have become foundational to modern society and great thinkers and philosophers. But at the same time, it really took us into that far end of logic. And Mm. I I had a Scottish boyfriend for five years. He was super, super enlightenment thinker, proud of his logic, you know, kind of militantly anti-intuition. And that that really just never really sat right because anything that wasn't science or provable was just bullshit to him. Mm. And so it doesn't leave any space for really development or innovation because if you always have to know, how can you break out of the status quo? Because out there is the unknown and that's what we need more of right now. So that's just my two cents, which actually I'm going to quote you again. You talked about Van Gogh, Van Gogh, we're going to say it the proper Dutch mm. way, saying he painted for eyes that have not been born. And I just found that so beautifully juicy and that's a great way to think about the, the ways we need to think, the ways we need to have conversations right now. And about how do we have conversations, maybe for people who aren't there yet, Mm. or conversations that make us good ancestors, to quote, what is it, Roman Kajnarik, I can't ever Mm. say his name, right? And he talks about how to be a good ancestor in his TED Talk and his book. Um, And this has been popping up on social media a lot, which is the, I don't know if it's a Greek proverb or which culture it's from, but that something about a society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they will never enjoy. So it's about a lot of things about holding space to have uncertainty, 
have intuition and instinct without rushing to the need to articulate it or prove it, while also recognizing that those things all have value as well, that scientific knowing logic. So how do we find balance now? How do we paint for eyes that have not been born? How do we have conversations that we need to have? We don't know a lot about what's going on right now. Who knows what the new systems we need need to look like? Who knows what the answer is to should you be vaccinated or not vaccinated? But yeah, how do we how do we have those conversations for children who haven't been born? Just a small question, you know. <laughs> yeah, it feels like you need a run up to something of a size like that. In particular, like like possibly in reference to like the first question you asked, like a moment that changed, like becoming a father has had like sizable um, changes upon me and how I view it to the point as well, like even now any baby that I see, knowing what I know in the world just now, any new baby, I'll, I'll like silently walk past them and just welcome them to the world and say, you know, like, thank you, you know, for, for, for coming. And um, like, and I can only imagine their parents must be like, what's this creepy guy doing? Like standing, you know, and I'm, I'm just like this, going, you know, <laughs> welcome, thank you, you know. And some of them are like, some, some, some of the children get like a lovely reaction and, and some are just like, is this idea but um it feels like such a special thing to do just now when i when i hear you talk about like you know how do we make decisions today or how do we navigate today for souls that have not yet arrived you know and and interestingly like and i suppose we're moving into that space now is like when i mentioned about the wisdom council that i set up to make this decision included in there is also trying to invite non-human beings into that decision and human beings like i know um there's a lady joanna macy that does a, a really incredible work called the power that um you know called work that reconnects um and one of her techniques is like holding a conversation with um a, a, a seven an ancestor of seven generations in the future you know, and she hosts a conversation with that individual, you know, and I remember the time that we did it, uh, you know, you're sitting across from someone who, who fulfills that role of that person from seven generations in the future, and you've to adorn the spokesperson of a role of someone of a, a wise elder. And, you know, the opening question they said, right, uh, you know, can you explain to us, you know, we, we really love we, we're really fond of what, what you've done and what you're doing, but we have questions that we need, we would like to know, you know, the opening one for us was, can you explain why you drop bombs on people in your, in your, and like I was sitting there in this example, having never been a human being that has knowingly dropped a bomb or been involved in the creation of a bomb or any, but I instantly felt like that was my responsibility. You know, I was speaking as if, and it was so like powerful to be in a place where I actually found myself being compassionate for the, like, and I was like, what's going on? But what I have found in, you know, in convening circles where we've held a chair, there was like a, a chair empty, 
you know, for, for, uh, and this is, this has been seen in many cultural practices, um, where it's either past loved ones, it's a, a, a chair for them or for, you know, for the spirit of people that have yet to come is, um, like, like all like me- methodologies and tools like that are to, are there to help us steward today. But what's interesting, like when I'm sharing this just now, I also know that some listeners and the, the you know some of my friends wouldn't meet me in this, wouldn't meet me with what I'm saying just now. You know, they'll they'll rush to 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 maybe criticize it, and you know, at times there's been parts of me again, like oh, you know, that's a chair we could fill. You know, that that's that's a ticket you could sell. You know, like you know that type of really sort of reduced thinking to to that perspective but at the same time i think we have to have an acceptance towards that we we don't know these things and an openness to try other things that we haven't tried before to convene a, a richer form of understanding and like you mentioned about like your your you know your your relationship to certainty and you know i had a call with a friend this morning who who asked a question about like what is our relationship to certainty and if you if you look throughout the world just now you know we have high levels of uncertainty even if you just introduce certainty to the fact that it's exclusive to the viral event that we're in just now and exclude all the other uncertainties that are present you know but our relationship typically to certainty is to 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 fight to to control you know it includes the creation of walls it includes you know the um the the incre- increasing defenses and 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 creating more barriers to protect and um and what's really interesting, I've noticed, and it's been exacerbated in the last two years, but it's not exclusive to this time, is the prevalence of war-type vocabulary in our conversations, in our, like, maybe even our ideologies, you know? So if it's, like, fight climate change, let's fight coronavirus. Um, um, and then, like, also, if you look online as well, there'll be a political discussion that you'll see in watch such and such crush or destroy someone and then you go and watch it and it's these two individuals that are talking about something and disagree it you know or and you're like oh that didn't equate to the reality that i've just observed um so i think there is invitations for us to to explore what our relationship is towards uncertainty because i think and there's a paradox here because then I was going to say what might be certain <laughs> is how uncertainty will increase. We've reached a natural break at this point between the first part of my conversation with Adam and the second part of my conversation with Adam. Hopefully you've enjoyed and learned from and found some juicy nourishing and nurturing moments in our conversation in which we've truly sought to model how to have conversations with people you don't necessarily agree with but can still love. 
you're definitely going to want to head over to the second half of my conversation with Adam in the next episode, in which we launch into talking more about his tech startup and how to make this digital space that we all have to use increasingly more human to make it work for us. So thanks for sticking with us so far and maybe re-listen to any other parts of this conversation that have really struck you or given you some sort of a reaction. Either you didn't quite agree or you wanted to go back and revisit. Good luck having your own difficult conversations out there. They're the conversations the world really needs right now. People need right now. We need to be heard. We have a fundamental need to be heard. So go hear some people out. Go seek out people to listen to and listen a lot more than you talk. And let's find a way forward together through conversations like the one you've just listened to between me and Adam. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts and head over to the Discomfort Practice Patreon page. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can become a contributor and help us to produce this podcast and reach new people with the idea that discomfort is just the edge of change, the edge of our superpowers, and the edge of changing the world for the better. Thanks to my wonderful team who helped me produce this podcast, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, Katrina Affleck for the original artwork, and to my co-producer Spencer Rausch. Let's all stay uncomfortable. Thank you.